Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy House. So nice to have you. Thanks for listening. Chris Thiele, you know Chris Thiele of Nickel Creek and the Punch Brothers. Chris has been making music nonstop since he was five years old. His musical parents found him a mandolin, he started taking lessons, and jamming at nearby Southern California pizza shops. There, he met Sarah and Sean Watkins when he was 12, and they started their band Nickel Creek. In the meantime, Chris's parents moved the family from California to Murray, Kentucky, and they really started getting serious about evangelical Christianity. This would have a huge impact on Chris. In fact, his new record, Lay Songs, is asking a lot of questions surrounding his experience with religion as a young kid. He talks about the transition from being a family with no religion in their routine to being amassed so intensely in one. Another important aspect that comes up on the new album is Chris's intense love for classical music, which started when his grandparents gave him some pieces by Bach and set him up for a lifetime of studying and playing classical music. He gets into what it was like to grow up alongside Sarah and Sean as bandmates, friends, and fellow Christians. One of the themes on the new album is about community, engaging in a community that you love. Chris recognized that he dissented from a Christian community in his young adult life where everyone was thinking the same way. Chris felt excluded, so he left. Now in music, he's found a new community where everyone is thinking the same, so certain people are excluded. He talks about how the pandemic has helped further shape those feelings about exclusionary community. We also get into a riveting conversation about Chris's thoughts on writing simple pop music and one of his deepest passions, drinking wine. We'll take a listen to a song from Chris's new solo album, and then we'll get into our conversation with Chris Thiele on Basic Folk. I'm Cindy. Hi, Cindy. I'm Chris. It's great to meet you. Great to meet you, too. Thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. I wanted to start talking about who your son Calvin is named after. I hear he is (laughs) named after Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, Absolutely. Yes. So hearing that just kind of like made my heart burst. Like, I love that comic. And I want to hear your relationship with Calvin, the character, and maybe how your childhood experiences might intersect. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm 
delighted to talk about Calvin and Hobbes uh, and in fact feel like it's a piece of work that inspired this most recent piece of work of mine quite a bit. Um, well, for one, I, I mean, I read it, I read it obsessively mm-hmm. as a kid. I think, I think maybe I was nine or 10 when I first became aware of it and we started buying the collections and, uh, and then I started reading along in the paper as well. I would get the newspaper, have my mom get me newspapers in our little mountain town so I could follow along with the baseball box scores. Um, and so then I would, I would do, I would read the, the funny section and read all the box scores. Uh, cause we didn't, we didn't have a TV at that time. We had one, but it only played movies and I only got movies once a week. And so reading those box scores and then reading Calvin and Hobbes, but I could never, I never picked up the narrative from the funny papers. Uh, I would, I, that was always for when I would get the collections. Mm. I, my, 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 my child mind could not retain what had happened yesterday mm-hmm. in the paper and, you know, and then put it together with what was happening today. I don't think I quite had the patience for that. But when I would get those collections, it was, I mean, it was everything for, I would, you know, sit down and read them all in one go. And the world that Bill Watterson created and that Calvin would create for himself. So there was the world of Calvin and Hobbes almost from the the Bill Watterson perspective. And then there was the world from Calvin's perspective. And I love... Mm -hmm how different those were. I mean, first and foremost with, with Hobbes himself, that of course Hobbes is real. Hobbes is both real and a stuffed animal. And I think that that, that may have been one of the first introductions for me to the possibility of multiple truths. Um, (laughs) Multiple conflicting, like multiple ostensibly conflicting truths. Mm. And, and that we as human beings contain multitudes and that the world around us can also contain ostensibly conflicting multitudes. Hobbes can be both a real tiger and a stuffed tiger. And those can both be true. And I think that this latest record of mine, Lay Songs, is also kind of trying to have its cake and eat it too on the considering of the religious impulse. I feel that the religious impulse is both a very beautiful and a very terrifying Mm -hmm. thing. And that we are sort of always on a a knife's edge when we're thinking about things that are bigger than ourselves and and just also how exciting how beautiful and intoxicating finding a little bit of truth can be and it can be intoxicating to the point that you start bashing people over the head with the with the truth that you've just found for yourself like this thing that is that is lo- un- uh, that's unlocking some doors for you you're so excited about the fact that it's doing that and it's very tempting to think that it will it will and should do that for someone else. And then we start to, I feel like we start to consider it a threat to that truth that we've discovered for ourselves or a threat to the good that we perceive it doing for ourselves when someone else doesn't accept that mm. as true, whatever it, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's giving all of us a whole lot of hmm. trouble right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, on on the internet and everywhere else. I feel like your answer to that question, I have so many questions about that answer. And honestly, in like doing the, I wasn't going to say this, but like, it's so funny. Like the first question, I was like, tell me about this cartoon character. And you're like, you take it up to like, you know, the 27th floor. Um, and I and I feel like <laughs> I want to answer those questions throughout the interview, but it's like, yeah. So so thank you for that answer of, thank you for being so Chris Thiele in that answer. <laughs> um, and now I want to talk about TV. Um, Maximalism are us. <laughs> so you and I are around the same age and like would have encountered like similar uh, media experience, you know, like... Mm. Transformers, Ninja Turtles, He-Man, etc. Um, but your parents, yeah. it sounds like you guys had a TV. It only had a couple channels. They had some strict rules. 
around yeah. the television. So what did that look like and how do you think it's impacted your life and where did you make your fun instead of TV? Yeah, so it was, I, I know about all the stuff you just mentioned, for instance, but I, I didn't actually ever experience it firsthand. I experienced it via the toys that my friends had. Mm. Um, and so I would go over to someone's house and they would have, you know, He-Man and Sheila and Skeletor. She-Ra, thank you. She was the girl. Skeletor, I remember, right? She-Ra. But I love Sheila. Right. See, I mean, I was just She-Ra. Sheila, Princess of Power. Wasn't there, and there was a, there was like a Buzz character, something Buzz, or I'm just, maybe, maybe one of my friends was making that up. Skeletor, I remember. Skeletor is bad, right? He's, yeah, the bad guy. He's the bad guy. So, and then Transformers, like I was aware of Optimus Prime, and that's come back uh, in the form of rescue bots for for my little boy. And Optimus Prime is sort of a um, sort of a shadowy, almost godlike character mm-hmm. in in this rescue bots thing, which also plays into this new album. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, well, you never know. Um, it's all sort of swirling around, right? Uh, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I was always delighted to play with those toys and, you know, felt like I could get the, the gist of what was going on in those shows. I would, I would watch Saved by the Bell with one, with one of my, with one of my friends. He, he, I would go to his house a fair amount and we would watch Saved by the Bell on WGN, the super, the Chicago Superstation, and then the Cubs would come on. After uh, all those Cubs day, you know, when it was uh, the vast percentage of Cubs games were were coming on at, at 1 p.m. Central. And so that was 11 smack in the middle of like our play dates. We would watch Saved by the Bell and then the Cubs. Uh, and that was kind of the extent of my of my TV oh my as a kid. And I think it it definitely forced I'm not necessarily anti television, but uh, to this day, I don't watch very much television except for sports. I watch lots of sports, so it's not like I'm I'm uh, <laughs> kind of uh, I'm not assuming a holier than thou position about about screens. I I watch lots of sports and and love watching sports. Sports feel it's like very zen for me mm-hmm. in some way, um, and I actually find it artistically useful. Um, just as someone who finds a lot of artistic delight in facility on an instrument like that, that I do a lot of exploring, you know, with, with my fingers. And, and so there's an athletic aspect of that. And so seeing someone like Roger Federer play tennis or, um, you know, or Serena Williams with that extraordinary serve of hers and watching the, you know, the emotional game that they, that they play um, against themselves, you know, more, more so than Mm. their, their opponents uh it strikes me as being a very it's very relatable as someone who's trying to move his body in a very p- particular uh and demanding way yeah your playing is so physical mm. yeah yeah i mean it's kind of like there's a lot of extraneous physical motion uh when i watch myself back i'm like why am i moving that much that doesn't help um you know but i i suppose sometimes it it does just kind of to feel and to underline kind of visually things that that I think are happening or I hope are happening in the music. But I think it's good for us to be deprived of any any one form of sensory stimulation. So mm. so I think that you know maybe if there were more of them silent movies would be uh you know just as as creatively stimulating as you know, reading a book is, uh, mm-hmm. or listening to, so you know, when you read a book, the visuals and the sounds are all up to you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when you watch TV or a movie, there's very little left <laughs> for you <laughs> to do as a creative being, you know, it's kind of all the creation has happened. And I'm in awe of people that make television and movies, but I, I personally often feel like I'm not being engaged as a creative being. Mm-hmm. Um, that 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 all of the art is 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 just happening to me, and I'm not really participating in it. 
And I, you know, I don't think that that's true for, for everyone. I think it's true for me. Like maybe I just, uh, I'm like greedy or so like, I <laughs> always want to be, I always want to be doing some of the work mm-hmm. of, of creating. And of course, like people who, um, you know, I can hear my wife in my head, even as I say this going like, it's because you have not learned how to participate in the, in the creative act of experiencing a, a, a film or a television show. And I'm sure she would be right about that. Right. It's just something I haven't, I think probably because of my childhood, it's just something I haven't put much work into uh, yeah. as opposed to reading books and, and, uh, and listening to music. And, and looking at art, like when you look at art, then yes, your your eyes are, the, the visuals are being taken care of, but the sound and, um, and the narrative and all of that is left open. And I do, all, I, I think almost without exception, prefer art that is kind of requiring its um, consumer, its, its appreciator to, to kind of fill in the blanks mm. and and sort of animate the building blocks that are being presented mm-hmm. and drawing their own conclusions and and not but kind of asking more questions than mm-hmm. than they are ask answering them and um, just because I feel like so many of the most important questions are unanswerable really and it's just worth mm-hmm. I I feel like a well asked question can be more informative than an answer can generally, or it can be more edifying, at least to me, than an answer can. So you wanted a mandolin when you were two years old. Your parents finally got you when you were five, and you started going to jams at that pizza place in San Diego where you saw and met John Moore, who would become your mandolin teacher. And you said, John was as good a teacher as he was a player, and he was a good player. Looking back, I have to say the best thing about him was that he never seemed to be impressed with me. And you also say that about your wife, that she's not impressed mm. with you, and that's why yes. you she co-produced your new record, and that's why it like works so well, because she is like she knows all your tricks and is just like not impressed. But can you talk about why you thrive around people who aren't impressed by you? Yeah, I think there's... There's a worrisomely large part of me, I think, that is a like a like a pure entertainer, um, like a, the, just a, a people pleasing entertainer, someone who wants to get that rise out of whoever's in front of him. Where do you think that came from? I don't know. I think it's deeply embedded. Um, and <laughs> I mean, you know, if I look at if I look at my grandpa, I see a lot of it. My grandpa might. On my dad's side, um, Grandpa Ed, I think he 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 loved an audience for a story. Mm. Uh, he was a speech pathologist, and a helpful just, skill. I think loved loved nothing more than an audience for a story about anything. And and so I think yeah, I, I came out of the womb, I think uh, looking for attention and and approval. Probably. Uh, and, and I think I'm like slightly addicted probably to the sense that someone is impressed by me, you know, and I don't think I don't, that is not good. I, I'm always running from, from that. I'm always trying to, I'm trying to work on that. Uh, always. It's like your comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. Or it just, I mean, it's just, I feel like it's like the lab rat that just like keeps hitting the treat button. You know, and if I can like, if I can feel like I'm impressing someone, that's like me just pounding on that, on that treat button, like as a little lab rat, Mm. because it doesn't, I don't think it results, it doesn't result in the best work for me. Yeah. Um, From me, like I'm I'm not making the biggest contribution that I can when I'm operating from that place. And, and so to be around people who have seen all of my tricks so they know they know how the magic trick works. They know, you know, how I'm like doing the musical equivalent of, of sawing somebody in half, you know. Um, my wife knows how I she's she's heard it a million times. And also I think she's never that's never been the art the kind of art that moves her the most anyway. 
And so also it's not, it, it, it's interesting. She, she, it's not like she's out there looking for like, yeah, give me the thing with the soul, man. Not this virtuosic stuff. It's not that. Um, and I think that people are too quick to detect any sort of virtuosity and dismiss it as being soulless or mechanical. I, 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 I think that that's a little bit of a, of a societal tick that mm-hmm. we all have right now. But of course, we come by it super honestly, and there have been there has been a lot of soulless mechanical virtuosity in in our our world, and so yeah, I, I do. I hope I hope that that you that the virtuosic among us, you know, can kind of like right the ship <laughs> a little bit and just make sure make sure that it's all that any virtuosity is always being subjected to the need for the the need that art has for emotional resonance hmm. and Im- impact like that it's only ever being used in the service of of emotional resonance you know what's interesting is that in thinking about what you're saying i think something that's really important to note about you is that you are somebody filled with charisma and filled with personality like you are very smart um just watching you throughout your career witnessing you receive many different awards like the macarthur grants listening to your very virtuosic rainy music um but you have this persona that has an immense amount of charisma like you're cool you're personable you're easy to talk to people which I'm wondering, like, you were kind of getting at that, but, like, how do you negotiate those two sides of yourself? Well, for one, thank you very much for saying those things. I, I, I think I'm a classic extrovert. And, you know, just that I, I get a lot of energy from being around other people. And I fairly early on started being deeply impacted moved by music that was not virtuosic and not braining like what oh i mean like i remember hearing gillian and dave for the first time gillian welch and david rawlings for the Mm -hmm. first time and of course that music is not devoid of virtuosity i mean (laughs) you know the harmony singing that they do you know virtuosity takes many forms and uh and i think that's what listening to Gil and Dave's music taught me. And of course, I mean, Dave himself is a guitar virtuoso. Uh, no less impressive from a technical perspective is Gillian Welch's rhythm guitar playing. Um, truly masterful. And I think, uh, he, or hearing someone like Glenn Gould, who had tremendous digital dexterity, fixating on like an overarching pulse to his second recording of the Goldberg Variations, a much less flashy pulse than was extant. What's his instrument? Piano. Okay. Uh, and and so, and th- these are Bach's Goldberg Variations. He recorded okay. them twice. And when he was younger, they were much, much faster and flashier. And by the way, no less emotionally resonant, but uh, also no less exciting was the second recording of them that was much less flashy. And so I feel like I was listening to things like Gould playing the Bach and Gillian Welch singing My Morphine and being introduced to having my dad sit me down with with Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. And up to that point, having been pretty fixated on Bach, like hearing Charlie Parker just blaze chorus after chorus on you know something like Donnelly it's like a fast bebop thing and then sitting down with with kind of blue and and I think feeling in my gut that there was something for for me more moving about that record than not than Charlie's playing not than an actually not than a, a uh, a beautiful Charlie Parker solo. That's that's as you know, viscerally satisfying, soul stirring as it is impressive, and and as kind of blue is. But kind of blue is a whole record, mm-hmm. and you know I think that I was clocking that 
this I I listen to Kind of Blue as a record over and over again, and I'm not listening to any one Charlie Parker record over and over again. I'm listening to solos. I'm listening, you know, I'm listening to a Charlie Parker solo, mm-hmm. and um, so almost like the difference between a like a a, a great one page short story and a novel and just clocking the difference there in my own you know just as, and again this is no i'm not you know i'm not saying that miles is kind of blue is better than any record that charlie parker ever made i'm not saying that i'm just saying like for me as a as a young musician just trying to clock like wh- why do i feel like this and so certainly there's tons of virtuosity present on kind of blue you know trains for a solo on on so what you know but then also how what a gut punch miles's solo is with you know very very spare shockingly spare kind of wildly spare thrill-seekingly spare and 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 realizing that all of these tools can be you know these are all tools that should be wielded in the service of making an impactful artistic statement. And if we want to understand how we as musicians can make an impactful gesture, musical gesture, then I think it behooves us to be constantly listening to, interacting with, and absorbing what makes the human beings around us tick so Mm. that we're not only relying on our experience of the world and of the world's music to guide us as we seek making those kind of emotionally resonant gestures. Hmm. I wanted to hear more about this remark you were making on Pete Holmes' podcast, which um, Mm. I was listening to it while I was jogging, so I don't know if it's fair of a question, but um, Taylor Swift and Radiohead came up. And Mm. here's where I... believe the gist of the Uh-oh, point was. what did I say? You were t- so it was 2018, so a lot has happened <laughs> since then. Yep. But mm-hmm. it just uh, made me want to hear more about you were talking about writing pop music and writing pop music and what people come to expect versus what you really want to express musically. Like Taylor Swift mm. is the first example where she's like I'm going to write music that people want to hear and Radiohead writes you know music that artistically expresses like another dimension so Mm. you mentioned that the only reason to write pop music was to make money but like I don't know if necessarily that's true maybe you don't believe that's true and what can be said for making music that makes people feel good and making simple music that makes people want to like get involved like kind of reminds me of like old school protest Pete Seeger songs where you want it to be simple so people can participate Mm. Oh yeah. Well, so so let me separate first, like the the aesthetic that we associate with pop. Like that, when we say pop music, mm-hmm. I think we all think of an aesthetic. And I, when I hear that quote, I I'm almost sure uh, that I was not referring to the aesthetic of pop music, but rather to. I so I feel like there's only there's only two genres of that really matter in terms of there's only one wall i mean genres genres do matter and they make talking about music easier um even if they're they're sort of woefully you're just it's such a blurry thing uh to or it it evokes a million different things and a million Mm -hmm. different people's minds and in a way like genre is what happens when good musicians start copying great ones mm-hmm. that's that's like a, that's kind of what genre starts being and so to me I'm always more interested in talking uh about specific artists I think that the only distinction or like the maybe the most important genre distinction to make is music that is made for music's sake and music that is made for money's sake I think mm-hmm. that is okay. uh, that's kind of the only difference and so far be it from me to listen to a Taylor Swift song and say, this was made for money or this was made for, and far be it from for me to listen to a Radiohead song and say, this was made for music. This was made for music's sake. I can, I can kind of look at, I think it's valuable as a creative person to try and get under the hood of our fellow creative people uh, whose work we're interested in. And um, or whose work rubs us the wrong way in some in some way. I mean, 
you know, learning, kind of unpacking that, like, why do, why do I have a negative reaction to X? Uh, and why do I have a positive reaction to Y? Um, that, uh, that is all going to be useful information that helps you as, as a creative person. Um, and, and so sometimes when I generally, my spidey sense starts tingling, like as to, you know, maybe there being a more commercial nucleus to a piece of music. My spidey sense starts tingling when I've heard other music that sounds exactly like it. And is that bad? Yeah. To me, if there's already, if, if there's already a song that, that does the same thing, then I, I don't need personally... I don't need more of that same thing. I think I'm so delighted that that the first one of it exists. Um, and so the second one might as well just listen to that same song again. You know, the the like with one of the classic exa- examples of beat, not to not to just uh, pile on, but you know, when you when you when you heard the first Nickelback single and then the second Nickelback single, you know, and and there was that very famous mashup where the person just laid no. them over each other and that it was never conflicting in any way yeah. you know and, and and so they had that first one then they were like how can we do that again uh and so to me that is and again far be it from like as an artistic person i'm i'm just looking to learn from a thing that that bothers me artistically about something um and what bothers me in that instance is like this is virtually the same gesture. And so I am always going to be more interested in the first piece of art to make that gesture. And, you know, when you think about Pete Seeger's, if I had a hammer, I mean, I'm not coming up with the thing that sounded like that before that was around, you know? And I'm thinking about a lot of different Pete Seeger songs that, yeah, I mean, they're simple, but if it's new then I'm like, then my mind is blown. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an aspect to which if you can, I mean, if you can find something that is simple or like primary, that is also non-derivative, oh my God, that is like, I think that's the, I think that's the dream, a simple, compelling, you know, sort of gut punch of a gesture. I mean, think about like, um, we will rock you. Uh, I mean, doom, doom. Like that lights you up from the first second. I remember hearing that song from the first time going like as a as a, a little kid, you know, just like bam. And it lights my little boy up in the exact same way. <laughs> and it's can you think of something that was I mean, that just came out of obviously, I mean, we're talking about um, you know, I think about chain gangs and yeah. uh, you know, people who had to like kind of use the rhythm to work. Yeah, they use the rhythm and then they sing a song together and all of that. But when you think about that simple beat and then how the juxtaposition of the kind of wordy mm-hmm. verse and then this sort of foundations of the earth chorus, there is nothing about that gesture that strikes me as being, you know, commercially driven. It just strikes me as being wildly, radically creative. Mm. And so that... Uh, that's all I'm looking for out of, a, of any piece of music is is something that is just creative, different, additive. Um, we have a lot of music in the world and we have an un, I mean, we have unprecedented mm-hmm. access to it at this point. So I think there's even less reason than there ever has been to make something that sounds exactly like something else mm. right now. I want to talk about kind of growing up with the Watkins siblings, Sarah and Sean from Nickel Creek. So the band started when you guys were little kids. You and Sarah were eight. Sean was 12. You started to jam together as a band and you kind of came from similar places. So what was it like to have your bandmates to grow up with, to discover popular music with, to learn how to be a band together, to especially in thinking about this new record to figure out that maybe you don't believe in every Christian doctrine that, you know, starting started to question things together. Like you pretty much experienced that lock and step with Sarah and Sean. Yeah. 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 We did for, for a long time. And it's, it's been fun hanging out a bunch recently. Uh, We're, we're starting to write again. And 
walking down memory lane thinking about thoughts that we experienced together and separately but in the you know on the on that same kind of path is it's really trippy it's trippy to be in a band with two people that you've been in a band with since you were i was eight sarah was eight sean was 12 when nickel creek started yeah that's been that's been an amazing an amazing journey and so uh i feel really lucky to have two friends that close two close friends that i've shared so many shared so many experiences with and yeah including growing up in a fundamentalist christian environment um i'd say our drifting away from it happened separately um or a lot of it did that it that it 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 sort of was starting to happen and that actually uh stepping away from the band was part of that um was kind of needing there to be a sea change um for some kind of some good old existential musing mm. not you know, like not in the company of those people that we that we spent so much time with and mm. we're so close to um you know like as little little mutations of thought started to occur you know we needed to go off and and follow those those trains of thoughts separately and yeah strangely enough i think reached a very similar place and have had I think even more fun than we than we ever did before. You know, in the last in the last um, in the last six months or so, doing some doing some writing. That's great to hear. So, religion as a kid, you experienced. I I, I think this is correct. You experienced a lack of structure around religion, um, and your parents actually found God when you were eight, living in Kentucky. Mm. They became evangelical Christians. Does that sound correct? Yeah, yeah. you're nailing it. <laughs> and the new record is asking a lot of questions surrounding your experience with religion as a young kid. Could mm. you talk about the transition from being a family with no religion in your routine to being amassed so intensely in one? Yeah, I mean, it was, I think I actually enjoyed the structure the same like what my parents were looking the problem that they were looking to solve i think i felt right along with them that it had been solved not that i was aware of a problem before that but i think i really enjoyed right along with them having these very definitive black and white answers mm -hmm. to um the the toughest questions and i you know i i see it with my with calvin with my little boy i see him starting to wrestle with the big questions you know why are we here like why do we have to die why does this person that we pass on the subway have so much less than us don't they have a mommy and daddy like all of those kinds of questions that can kind of vanish if you buy fundamentalist christianity you know wholesale you're just like yep i'm in um you know, give me and the version of it with the least amount of gray imaginable, mm. you know, and that's that's kind of where we were at. Um, the least amount of gray, just black and white. Here's what you do. Here's what you do to get to heaven. Mm -hmm. uh, and here's what you don't do to get to heaven. And that's maybe more important. Maybe we talk more about that. What you don't do uh, to get to heaven. Because we're pretty sure you're doing it. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And um, or you know, the temptation is to, to do all of these things. It's all around and, and you got to, you got to be careful. You got to look out. And, um, yeah, so, so I think I've got, I totally understand where my parents were at and they bless them, just kept their ears wide open and, um, you know, through the whole, the whole experience and, and my brothers and I started leaving the nest I never rebelled I never I never had like this moment where it's just like screw you guys this is crazy um it was just going out with Sean and Sarah going out and meeting a bunch of different kinds of people who you know my version of Christianity was condemning to hell for not saying the magic words in essence um you know or for you know loving this person instead of that person and believing this you know, feeling strongly about that, uh, that, though, that, that any number of things were sort of condemn 
condemnable offenses and damnable offenses would be an easier way to say that. <laughs> and um, it started ringing false. It, it was like, I, it was scary to me. I didn't want, I, I was not, you know, it wasn't like, woohoo, like let's get hammered. Uh, <laughs> for me, it was, it was scary to start acknowledging the gray that I was seeing mm-hmm. in, in the world. Like that there's not, it wasn't like I felt, but, you know, back to how where we started, it wasn't that I felt that what I had been taught was wrong, except as it pertained to the damnation of people who didn't believe that. That's what I could not wrap my head around. And, you know, I can't wrap my head around it and um, and feel that we have to allow for perspective and how radically different the world can look from different perspectives and how it might actually be different. So that the way that you see the world from your perspective is equally valid. You know, obviously what you're seeing is what you're seeing and that's all you have to go on. And what I'm seeing is what I'm seeing and it's all I have to go on. And, um, you know, what you're seeing from your perspective is no less valid than what I'm seeing from my perspective and what this new record dwells uh, you know kind of a lot on um, particularly in this this piece in the in the center of it called salt and the wounds of the earth is how I've recently I've become aware that I think I've taken the same dogmatic tendencies that I grew up with into my ostensibly non-dogmatic life mm-hmm. uh, and am similarly judgmental towards people who, you know, maybe believe uh, or, you know, maybe are kind of coming from the perspective that I used to be coming from um, and am, am as dismissive of them as I used to be of people who are coming from the perspective that I'm coming from now. And this is this is all very new for me. I, you know, here I was thinking like, oh yeah, man, your eyes have been open, your ears are open, you love everyone, everyone's great, and and then I check in with my thoughts as I read this or that newspaper article, or you know, wrapping my head around you know the other side of the political aisle, mm-hmm. um, you know, things like things like that, and 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 the I do not like what I see of myself, mm-hmm. you know, as I like, like take a, take a good hard look at the feelings that I'm having towards my fellow human beings who are seeing the world <clears throat> from their perspective. Yeah. And I don't know how it feels or how it looks from their perspective. And I'm instantly, I'm instantly damning them just like I used to. And just like I decided was wrong. Hmm. And that's not to say that there aren't absolute truths out there you know as even as we talk about the the allowing for the possibility of multiple seemingly conflicting truths you know we also have to allow for the fact that there can be like nope that's wrong <laughs> you know and i think we can yeah. all think of a lot of that right now and um and that just makes our tendencies towards kind of teaming up with people who for the most part, think a lot like we think, I think we start sort of blindly accepting the whole kit and caboodle and not and not evaluating, you know, point to point. And uh, yeah, I just have I just have a lot of questions about it all. Yeah. You know, and how and how I'm like looking at the the interaction that I'm having with my fellow human beings right now. And I'm, you know, not not super impressed with myself. I'm also wondering if this um, epiphany, so to speak, religious term, Mm. this epiphany that you've had about the way that you are working to exclude people who think differently from you, I think it's really good uh, in general, and it's a very difficult thing to do. But on the flip side of that, there's another movement going on 
in Americana that is working to recognize uh, white supremacy and recognize um, the racist tendencies that the the music that that we love and that we've enjoyed has had over the past mm. hundred plus years. So where do you reflect on on that in in terms of like the lessons that you're taking and moving forward from that conclusion? It's totally kind of different, but it's interesting to hear from you like where that lands. It's impossible to find an area of this, of you know, like roots music, Americana music, that doesn't owe, you know, a, a, an extreme debt of gratitude to people of of color. Um, you know, all 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 these brilliant BIPOC musicians that that came before us and are are still out there making extraordinary music right now. Um, I'm in the middle of a, a project where I'm looking for old folk tunes for this, like a curational project and am horrified by how little I knew about where this stuff was coming from mm. and what kind of people were responsible for its creation and the extent to which they've been written out of the story. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I I'm just, I'm a, I'm a student, uh, uh, you know, on this matter. So I, I, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying, trying to actively learn where a lot of this music that informs every note that I play and, and every word that I sing, you know, and how I sing the words that I write and how I play the notes that I imagine, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that it, that it's just standing on the shoulders of a bunch of people that are just embarrassingly underrepresented mm. in in my musical community. I do have one more question about okay, great. Um, the new album, Lay Songs. The way you start and mm. end the record is really interesting. You start with the tri- title track, Lay Songs, which is about, which is not about listening to differences, but drowning out the enemy. And it mm. ends with Hazel Dickens won't you come and sing for me, which is about listening to people. And it's like, you've really taken us on a journey here, Chris. Um, Aww, I'm so <laughs> psyched that you noticed that. I know there was like a lot of intentional choices um, made in the track listing, but can you talk about why it starts that way and why it ends that way? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, what you just observed. I think that's that's super apt and, and um, felt Right. You know, it wasn't it wasn't that I started the record and 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 said, OK, I want to, you know, that that song that you mentioned that, that does sort of cl- that climaxes in that drown out the enemy, drown out the enemy um, sentiment starts with the oh, but then what shall we sing now when we gather together? But anyway, as it continues to, you know, it's asking, like, what sort of what are we going to do? You know, this coming together, it's I, I'm I'm looking at that ritualistic singing together, like the Sunday morning, you know, filing into this meeting place with a bunch of people who you may or may not know that well and singing about this thing that you may or may not feel totally attached to. But there is something absolutely magical about it. And so with what? If the lion's share of that, uh, you know, of what that ritual is is stemming from is not working for you, you know, sort of existentially anymore, with what do you replace it? And and yeah, it culminates in that song was kind of written in a, a pea soup fog of real anger. Mm. Like, just, you know wanting to wanting to hear about anything besides what was going on right then and uh and so in 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 that moment actually it's like the drown out the enemy i'm almost just thinking about all of those things that are making me feel making us feel bad about being human Mm -hmm. um you know when there's a lot out there right now that makes us feel ashamed you know, yeah. as a species. So much to worry about. So much to worry about and and so much to 
you know, work on all the time, just problem after problem. Like Aeneas Mitchell's The Wall. Yes, yes, absolutely. That is such a brilliant lyric. Yeah, so I want, in you know, in that song, it's just like wanting reminders about, like, where are we going to get the reminders that human beings are capable of great beauty, uh, some of the greatest? And, like, where, like, where are we going to get that regular reminder of the goodness of humanity? And, you know, yeah, so we do a lot of meandering from that place to the Hazel Dickens song. I love that Hazel Dickens says, won't you come and sing for me? Not even with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm talking about with in at the top. There's a really distinct difference. And she's she's saying for at the end, like my comfort is going to be coming from you and I need it mm. right now, kind of in my darkest hour. And I, so I love that vulnerability mm-hmm. and the admission of need. Right, because what if they say no? Yeah, totally. And I think we do. I think we say no to each other all the time and then wonder why no one's there for us in our hour of need. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I do, I do think that there's, there's a journey that the record takes towards trying to get there um, to that place that Hazel Dickens was in when she wrote, Won't You Come and Sing for Me? In talking about the song Dionysus, the god of wine and ecstasy, it's interesting to uh, want to have included him on a record about exploring religion and God. Um, And you say that wine is evidence of the spiritual, which is beautiful. What is your relationship with wine? What makes it spiritual for you? Oh, Lordy. I feel like wine is evidence of, you know, we were just talking about about looking for those reminders of the beauty that human beings are capable of. Uh, Wine, I think, is particularly interesting to the extent that it is an example of a positive interaction between mankind and the earth. And, you know, that we, we see so many examples of how we are destroying this place Mm -hmm. that, you know, has either been entrusted to us or we're just here and, and, you know, messing it up Um, in, in all of these ways that we're, you know, hopefully all pretty conscious of at this point and are sort of actively trying to, you know, limit the damage. We know that, that preventing the damage is impossible at this point. And, you know, we're all trying to limit it. And it's another source of shame, I think if you're a human being, I don't know how you can look at the situation and not feel shame. I feel so much shame. Mm -hmm. I might look at my kid and it's just like, yeah, I I helped make it this way, bud. Sorry. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, obviously viticulture has in some ways been a force for evil in terms of, you know, wasting resources or or abusing land. Um, But when the I mean the greatest wine is made in a very symbiotic way with with the earth and kind of what what the earth needs and like you know letting the field rest letting the vineyard rest is such a huge part like if commercial gain wasn't driving the ship so much of the time like it is some some very either very privileged or very principled winemakers do let the the vineyards lie you know every 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 so often and you will always taste the difference does that mean like regenerative regen i don't know how to say the word regenerative yeah yeah well i just like when when the yeah i, I know i know restorative it, I know, I can't or something think of the word restorative and and yeah it's 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 the Relentless cultivation depletes the soil of its, mm-hmm. you know, of what's making it rad. And, and, uh, how metaphorical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could stand to learn a lot about that just as an artist. Um, you know, the point of diminishing returns where you're mm-hmm. sitting there and working on your materials and working on your materials and working on your materials and all of a sudden it sounds dead. Um, the music sounds dead. Uh, you know, just to always be valuing that which comes naturally to you as highly as that which you've had to sweat bullets to acquire. Um, very tempting as an artist to, to undervalue your strengths 
and mm-hmm. overvalue your weaknesses and want to mm-hmm. show people your weaknesses because you've worked so hard on them yeah. and not be showing people your strengths because they're your strengths and you are not aware that they are strengths. Hmm. It's just what you do. And, uh, but yeah, wine, I think, I think when it's well-made and made kind of made responsibly is a real lovely dance between human beings and the earth. And then, you know, of course it can be, I mean, it's an obvious, it's intoxicating. It's poison. It's a, it's an intoxicant, um, <laughs> you know, but there's also, you know, the tradition of using it uh, in communion, for instance, you know, I think there's a very practical and and positive application, you know, I mean, moderation in all things, of course. And, and just like where you can get in conversation with someone over a good glass of wine is some of the most life-changing conversations I've had mm-hmm. have been over a good bottle of wine. And, um, and, you know, I don't think that's an accident. <laughs> I think sometimes <laughs> the wine is, is getting in there and helping. Uh, I mean, I say this with great fear and trepidation. I'm not advocating for, <laughs> for the abuse of alcohol. Um, you know, just that, just that I do feel like coming together over, over something like that, mm-hmm. this, it's very ritualistic and you, you, you pop the cork and you pour a glass and you, you know, you smell the thing, you taste the thing, you think about it, you talk about it. And the next thing you know, you're having an easier time talking about something difficult. Yeah. Like, you know, talking about something that really matters and maybe listening to someone that you disagree with in a more open way, like maybe allowing for the fact that they might have something to teach you. Um, and when they feel that from you, they feel that openness from you, then maybe they will allow for the fact that you might have something to teach them. Um, but if we're not open to the possibility that our minds could be changed by someone, how would, how would they ever feel comfortable or safe enough or valued enough to open themselves up to something that we have to say. Hmm. All right. Let's do the lightning round real fast. Great. Uh, okay. Ready? Here we go. Yeah. What was the first song you learned on the guitar? Guitar? Uh, <laughs> I know you play oh, it. Oh, boy. I do play it. Um, but the first song I learned on the guitar, I don't know. Maybe it was like Billy in the Low Ground or something. All right. We'll so like, that. Yeah, it feels like maybe something after my lightning rounds are too slow. Sorry. Billy in the Low Ground. <laughs> Karaoke song. <laughs> oh, uh, definitely uh, Last Night by The Strokes. Nice. Uh, dogs or cats or something else? Oh, I'm right in between. I okay. like them both. What is your coffee order? Uh, it is a Cortado. First celebrity crush? Natalie Portman. Who is the nicest musician you've ever met? Oh, Lordy. So many super, super nice people. I mean, Yo-Yo's real nice. Mm. Uh, Dolly Parton is real nice. <laughs> um, That's a hard I, one. I think those are those are two that, like, I, 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 I want to reference them because I feel like so many people have an idea in their head about those two people of, like, what they might be like and hope against hope that they're actually like that. And... I, I feel like very blessed to be able to say, yes, they are exactly like you hope they are, <laughs> if not more so. <laughs> first album you bought with your own money. Lots of river bands carrying the tradition. What was your first concert? Doc Watson at La Paloma Oof. in Encinitas, California. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Beatles. Flying or Invisibility? Flying. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars, come on. Last one. <laughs> Where is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? It's, that's impossible, but I always love going back to Telluride, Colorado every year. There's something about familiar beauty that I think can be more moving over time. And, you know, but, you know, certainly like fresh beauty, totally new alien beauty (laughs) is like, we'll pack the most extreme wallop, you know? Yeah. But it's like, as I'm trying to think about the last, that last one, I think of something like Telluride, Colorado, where I go every year and every time I pull into that box canyon, I look up and I'm just like, oh, the world is still a beautiful place. Wow. That's great. 
Well, great. I'll see you at Telluride. Uh, yes. This was so awesome. Thank you so much, Chris, for being so generous with your time. This has been awesome. Oh, no, thank you for just a well and deeply considered set of questions. Basic Folk This Week, produced by John Nungesser. Our theme music composed by Alex Stanton of the band Townspeople. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes wherever you got this podcast and at our website, basicfolk.com. All right. Talk to you next time. Bye.